This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday the 20th of April. With me today I have Ken Watson. Ken is a renowned UK investor and now a managing director in the public equity team at Gresham House. After Oxford, Ken took the well-trodden path to becoming an accountant and equities analyst before running client money. Ken, good morning. Morning, Nick. Thanks for having me. I'm very delighted you're here today. Um, Can we start with maybe you introducing Gresham House? Sure, yeah. So Gresham House is... um, well, we, we style ourselves as a, a specialist alternative investment manager. Uh, companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, overall, the company runs about eight billion pounds worth of, of assets across a number of different strategies. My, my own strategy is public equity. We also have private equity, and then a number of strategies in in real assets, including forestry, renewable infrastructure, housing, uh, uh, and others. So um, we're quite diverse, but we, we think we're doing something a bit different. Interesting. So if we go back to the start about you, what first interested you in the world of finance? If I'm, if I'm really honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left university. And um, I, I did actually spend uh, almost a year working in a call centre, um, sort of selling things from um, you know, Telewest, uh, telecommunication services for, for companies, uh, Time Life, series of, of videos and... and uh, and and CD collections, uh, and then then I sort of worked out that actually, if I went into accountancy, I could get paid to get a qualification, yeah. which sort yeah. of opens up options. That, yeah. You know, so so really, I, I kind of got into into KPMG and accounting because I thought it it was uh, a good grounding for business and um, whatever I wanted to do. So I guess the the the, the path to be a lawyer was no, of no interest. So I guess that would have been two paths, wouldn't it? Really, accountancy or or maybe yeah. Look, and lots and lots of my friends were were, were and are lawyers. Um, I, I just didn't really fancy doing that. So KPMG to do your articles. Uh, so KPMG, I, sp- I spent nearly four years there. Did did uh, three years. Got my ACA qualification. Spent almost another year doing transaction work, you know, mainly in the telecom sector. So cable and wireless was a big client of ours. Um, and it was it was from that that I sort of got the opportunity to go into equity research. So I had a uh, a job offer from a uh, from Commerce Bank, which is a big yep. German bank, yep. um, to to be a, an equity research analyst in the telecom sector. And because I'd sort of had experience in that space, and at the time, the telecoms was surprising it may surprise some listeners to to know it was quite a sexy sector. Vodafone was fifteen percent of the FTSE one hundred, and uh, you know it was it was an area where there was a lot of interest because of the sort of impending 3g sort of so i'm guessing that must have been uh, late 90s yeah so late 90s early 2000s yeah. yeah i mean it's a great great time for all technology and telecoms i guess uh, you know, before the before the the bust yeah and so you know i spent uh, four years at, at commerce bank 
as the markets gradually sort of uh, sold off and ground down on the back of the, the sort of popping of the dot-com bubble. But telecoms are still a really, really important sector. I think it's, you know, and clearly it's an important sector, but I think it's more of a utility now, whereas yeah. then it was, you yeah. know, it was really sort of where, where the excitement was. And were you looking at European telcos? Yeah, so it's pan-European telecoms, and I specifically focused on, on the mobile sector, which was the kind of you know, the exciting bit within it. And then a move to evolution, obviously a name dear to my heart, because I also worked there before it was bought by Investec. Yeah, so I I, um, I moved to evolution where rather than doing large cap pan-European, we were doing small cap, um, you know, a lot of deals and fundraising activity, and you know, it was a bit more dynamic. And, and I was covering telecoms, but also technology and anything kind of vaguely related to that. So it was it was a pretty uh, you know, interesting time. There was uh, it was when the AIM market was really flying, and there was lots of companies coming to the market, raising money, doing interesting things. And uh, I guess that's that's where I sort of decided small companies was was where I wanted to focus because you know, they're just a lot more dynamic. Yeah. There's a lot more variety, and you know, it's interesting things happening. And then. Where did the thought to move to the other side of the fence, i.e. to the buy side, come from? Uh, well, I, I'd actually sort of thought about doing that a few years before, had a few interviews and, and it hadn't quite happened. And, and you know, so I, I thought my my sort of, the, the way my mind works, my, my, my skill set was a bit more, my personality was a bit more suited to actually taking risk and, and uh, you know, effectively backing my own judgment rather than trying to advise other people yeah. what to do. You know, I wanted to be more more of a principal than an advisor. So uh, the, the opportunity came along. I applied um, to, to work at what was then called ISIS Equity Partners, a uh, private equity firm. Um, obviously, the, the, it, it subsequently changed its name to Living Bridge uh, because the, the, the brand was somewhat polluted by the, 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 the other ISIS. Um, but uh, really exciting business, a sort of UK mid-market growth private equity house. But um, they had they had a uh, you know, portfolio of listed companies, small businesses on the AIM market, and myself and my my colleague were sort of brought in to professionalise that and, and and run it in, run it in a sort of systematic public company sort of way. So so I built up a portfolio and an investment strategy around public companies, but within the a private equity environment. And I assume a background in accountancy and, and being an analyst must have been very beneficial when moving to the other side to become an investor? Well, I think accountancy just gives you the training and the discipline and you know, an understanding of company accounts and, and how to interpret them. Uh, being an analyst sort of helps you to understand more widely what investors care about and when, when they're looking at a company. So you know, it's not just about is a company a good company, but you know, is it a good investment? Which is not not the same thing. Um, and and you know, so so absolutely those, those that grounding, the, the kind of basic technical training, the 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 understanding the context within a market, how to interpret uh, you know, a, a business and and a stock, and then whether it's whether you should be buying or selling it to make money. Um, you know, obviously, th- those are really good important skills to learn to be a fund manager. And then you spent a long time at, at Livingbridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was there for 12 years. And I guess, you know, interestingly, you know, running quoted markets within a, within a public equity firm, you know, can private equity disciplines be brought to public markets easily? Um, well, we, we, we would describe our sort of public equity investment strategy and approach at, at Gresham um, as taking a private equity approach to, to, to investing in public markets. So uh, I guess the answer to your question is yes, in, from my, my perspective. But what, what do we mean by that? Because you know, private equity has lots of connotations. It means different things to different people. But you know, the, the, 
living bridge the firm that i worked in for 12 years you know very very high standards really focusing on quality companies quality management teams and and helping to build businesses so you know helping to build the, the high performing teams and boards implementing systems uh, best practice trying to put the building blocks in place, backing entrepreneurs, but helping them professionalize their business and make them more scalable and help them to grow for either faster or for longer. So that's that's the kind of ethos and mindset and culture. And we try to try to bring that to public market. So what makes a quality company, what makes a good management team, um, really focusing on doing the right due diligence on those businesses before we invest, but also being very engaged with those companies after we've invested. And, you know, and, and I guess, Fundamentally, it means not investing in share prices and looking at Bloomberg screens. Mm-hmm. It's about investing in businesses and understanding the, the businesses themselves. Do you think the public markets give you credit for that in the way that public markets could be very short term, where your investment strategy, quite rightly, I'd imagine, is is much longer term? Um, I think I think it's this this pros and cons to it. So you're right. Public markets can be quite short term, and we are long-term investors we, you know, we're typically trying to invest in a company and hold it for four or five years you know, in some cases much, much longer than that um, my, my view is always if the company is doing the right things if the fundamentals are correct then ultimately the stock market will recognize that and, and value it appropriately it may not do that on any given day or in, even any given year but you know, if over the long term that the you know, fundamentals will rise to the top um, and actually the volatility and the short-termism of the market you know, whilst it can be frustrating sometimes if, if, if a company's not being sort of recognised, also that gives you the opportunity because if other people aren't recognising it because they're focused on the short term, you know, that maybe there's a great long-term opportunity and that's certainly the case in the market at the moment, I would say. Yeah, indeed, and we might come on to that later on. Now, most of your careers, you know, subsequently um, post Commerce Bank, you've specialised in, in smaller companies. What attracts you to that asset class? I know you sort of highlighted it, but uh, I mean, I find it the most exciting asset class. Um, because of its variety, but you know, what what attracts you to it? Yeah, I think I genuinely believe my job. You know, I'm I'm in, in a very privileged position with with my job because you meet you know, exciting entrepreneurial people, um, whether the actual entrepreneurs who've created businesses or the ones that are really driving them forward. They are you know, the engine room of the of, of the sort of growth in the economy, mm-hmm. um, and you meet some sort of dynamic people who are who are changing things, doing things doing exciting things and, and doing things differently. So you know, that that's a great thing to get out of bed of in, in, for in the morning. And um, we're really lucky that we have big equity stakes in companies that are, that are doing really exciting things. And, and we have strong relationships with the management teams that are driving them. And that's very interesting. And I guess, and I guess also being large holders of these companies, you have very good access to, to management. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can shape the destiny or assist in shaping the destiny of these companies, I mean, if you were a large cap fund manager, you probably would meet the CEO once or twice a year, and that's probably it on their results roadshow. But you are much more, I assume, hands-on. Yeah, absolutely, and you know that was one of the frustrations of being an analyst at Commerce Bank and you know, covering something like Vodafone. You know, you getting access to this to the, the CEO was quite difficult, and you might, like you say, you'd, you'd get that in a big group meeting, you know, two or three times a year, and you might get a one-on-one once a year. Um, you know, where, where we have, you know, we might own ten percent of a company. Uh, you know, we 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 can call the CEO whenever we want, and yeah. um, you know, we are trying to work with them collaboratively to, uh, you know, give our views on the strategy of the company. We're we're providers of capital to them to help them to to uh, sort of fund growth initiatives. We're so we we have you know, we give them advice on governance, on best practice because we you know they they 
any given company, any given management team, they know a lot more than I do about their market, their customers, their 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 kind of you know, their growth opportunity. But I see hundreds and hundreds of companies a yeah. year, and so we've got a really good breadth of experience of what good looks like and what best practice looks like uh, across lots of different businesses and industries. So we've we've got that perspective, which hopefully you know, for the for the the good management teams, they recognise that and they 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 want to listen and you know they're prepared to be influenced where that's relevant. And then what's the sort of scope of size of these businesses that, that you will invest in? So uh, you know, we, we've got a number of different funds that the team manage, um, and they range from you know, really very tiny aim companies that we, we invest in through our Baronsmead VCTs. You know, they, so they could be you know, 10, 20 million market cap mm-hmm. company, um, right through to FTSE 100 companies selectively through our multi-cap income fund. But our core area is small mid-cap, and I guess... You know, the the 100 to, to three 400 million market cap range will be our sweet spot where you know, the companies are small enough for us to build an edge to where, where they're not necessarily that well known by the market and there's an opportunity for them to get re-rated as people start to sort of realize they're doing good things but we, we can probably find them before other people um, and they're small enough that we can potentially build a big enough stake to have an influence and to, to build that kind of closeness to the management team and, and as you say make a difference to them. I guess it, it very much becomes a partnership, doesn't it, between you and uh, a source of capital, a management a source of operation. And actually, if that marriage works well, then it works for it works very well for everyone. Yeah. So then, if you sort of think back, what have you been the sort of great examples of companies that you bought, bought and worked with and have, have delivered this sort of success? Um, so th- there's a, there's a great case study that um, uh, and it sort of means something to me personally because because it was the first investment that I sort of had lead responsibility for yep. when I was at Living Bridge. Uh, it was a company called Fastfill, which was a, a software business, uh, software as a service, um, providing derivatives trading, sort of uh, both front-end uh, sort of trading platform software for, for traders, but also the risk management and, and such like that goes behind it. Um, I, I remember wheeling my one-week-old son around uh, West Hampstead and, and talking to the chairman because there was a deal happening and um, my wife didn't really want me to be doing that, but I sort of, so I went out and I, and I was sort of negotiating, a, a, I was putting money into the company. Um, and the, you know, it had its ups and downs, but the people had high integrity um, and they really delivered. And in the end, the company got sold. We made uh, you know, an attractive return. And you know, the, the, the people uh, you know, I'm still in touch with now, and it's what it was sold you know, at least seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was sold 10 years ago because I, I got invited to a drinks due by the, the chair and CEO to sort of celebrate the 10-year the anniversary of them uh, of them exiting. And you know, we, we, we would happily work with the, those guys again. And um, who do they sell to? Uh, a business called Ion Trading. I guess there must be many other sort of success yeah, stories. Yeah, and, and, and uh, in, in terms of businesses that we, uh, that we currently own, I mean, th- there's a couple of good examples where we've backed businesses from when they were really small yeah. and we still remain sort of large significant shareholders today and we still think the companies have good prospects so one would be a business called inspired which is a uh, energy consultancy business so it advises corporates on uh, how to optimize their procurement of energy so get the best best prices best deal from the suppliers which is obviously very topical at the moment and yeah. um, but also how to optimize their usage of energy so i.e. reduce their consumption um, which in the short term saves costs but also it, it's a really important factor for for companies given the carbon reduction yep. agenda in ESG yep. um we invested in that company when it was uh, it first came to the stock market in 2011 
Um, we were uh, one of the largest shareholders at that point. Uh, it had about a million pounds worth of profit. Today it's making about 25 million pounds. It's much, much larger company. Uh, we still have, you know, we are the largest shareholder in that business and we still think it's got you know, really exciting prospects today. Uh, another one would be Netcore, which is a, a software business focused on customer engagement and business process automation. Again, we, we invested in that one in 2010. Uh, backing them to do an acquisition, we've, you know, we've we've backed them to do a number of other acquisitions over the years. Bought shares in the market, and again, we're the largest shareholder today. Well, maybe your time in the call center helped with yeah. help with that due diligence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, if only had their software then. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, whilst I have you here, I mean, the, we we talk a lot about sort of smaller companies, but what's you know, do you have a view on the that sort of wider market? I mean, we're going through so much sort of turbulence at the moment with the raising rates and concerns about inflation. Um, where would you and, and Gresham sort of put the put the macro story together? Um, look, we we deliberately so are not macro driven investors, so we don't we don't sort of chop and change our portfolios to be dependent on a macro yep. view. We try to f- focus on companies that can thrive and be successful, even if the economy is not firing on all cylinders, because they are in particularly interesting areas with structural growth and such like. So um, we're not taking a strong view. I think clearly we're in a in a you know, challenging environment, but I I try to be glass half full about these sort mm-hmm. of things. And you know, for, for every challenging environment, that, that that creates opportunities. And some of the best businesses and the best management teams, they you know, they're the ones who can adapt and can can be successful when others are sort of you know stuck and don't know what to do. Um, uh, you know. Businesses like Netcall inspired. We invested in them when not long after this financial crisis, and yes. things, things seemed really tough then. But those businesses have taken market share, they've innovated, and they've been really successful. And so, some of the best investments I've ever made in my career were done at, you know, at a time when it felt really difficult. But in hindsight, when you look back, actually, it was a great time to invest. And I think we're in that kind of period now. So it's a classic sort of be greedy whilst others are fearful to a degree. Yeah, I think you, know, you just got to be really focused on the fundamentals, not sentiment. Um, and you know, do we really believe this business can be successful over the long term? Can it grow its profits? You know, and if you can buy it on a multiple of profits, which is depressed because sentiment yeah. is poor, then you're going to make a better return. Yeah, and there seems to be an awful lot of companies where their where their uh, multiples are depressed because of sentiment currently. I feel I, I totally agree, and and you know, we. We have a pretty good insight into what's happening in private markets because you know, obviously yes. I've worked in a private equity firm, but also we have a, a, a private equity team within Gresham as well. Um, and it's really stark at the moment. You can see you know, there are big, big gaps between the valuation multiples that some of the, the small cap companies that we follow are trading on versus the multiples that similar businesses are uh, being bought and sold for in private markets. So private equity um, you know, c- c- are... Looking at the UK stock market at the moment and seeing what they perceive to be you know, bargain prices for yeah. good companies, and yeah. you know, because there's a there's a sort of negative sentiment about the UK overall and the economy, that doesn't mean that individual companies in particular sectors are are, are are sort of having a tough time. And if they're trading at half the multiples that a private equity firm could buy a similar business, then that's pretty attractive from, from their point of view. Do you, do you think those private equity multiples actually? come down rather than the equity market multiples going up only because we have you know, refinancing risk there's a you know, there maybe there are fewer buyers um, and also they're you know a classic sort of mark to market ultimately yeah I, th- I mean undoubtedly private market multiples will 
have already moderated compared to what they were, were a couple of years ago. But I think they were pretty frothy a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I think um, for good, solid, profitable cash generative businesses, you know, the, the multiples are holding up quite well. And I, th- I think you're right about debt markets being sort of more more difficult. But if, if you can buy a company for half price, then you don't need as much debt if you're a private equity firm. That's very true. And, and there's a lot of yeah. dry powder out there. I mean, it's, a, it's been sort of commonly trailed in the media about you know, trillion plus dollars worth of commitments to private equity funds that needs to be invested. But that that that's that's true, and it does need to be invested. And um, you know, they're, they're cur- currently sort of turning their heads to the UK stock market because it looks cheap. And I guess also there are two there are two elements to this, aren't there? There's sort of tech VC private equity, and then there's industrial real company, if I can say that, uh, <laughs> private equity. So I guess the the cash hungry early stage businesses, I guess valuations might struggle there, and I think yeah. ra- further fundraisings might be done at a severe discount. I think Gusto highlighted the other day that they'd done a round that's sort of seventy five percent below the mm-hmm. the last round but i guess you're right with um interesting industrial profitable businesses there is a real disconnect between private equity multiples and the stock market multiples and yeah. if we take that you know, one step further you know our smaller end which both of us have worked in a very long time uh, the market does feel somewhat broken i mean there seems to be limited interest and limited liquidity and there are fewer and fewer investors on an institutional basis, who play at that smaller end of the market? How how do we combat this, and and what do you think the catalysts for change are? Is it potentially private equity coming a bit lower down the market cap and beginning to take some of those up? So there's a realization of value there. Um, how how does how do we get out of this spiral? So I, I think it's very easy in the media, sort of really really sort of focus on this to be concerned about the market being broken and the UK becoming a sort of backwater in terms of, it, of its stock market. Uh, personally, I don't believe that's the case at all. I think we're just in a cyclical downturn. And if you were sat in in France or in Germany or somewhere else, you, they're, they're probably having the same conversation about their, their position. But you know, we're, we're very good here at, at sort of doing ourselves down. Yeah. Um, you know, only a couple of years ago, the, the, the IPO market was thriving. There was lots of exciting companies coming to the market and there was plenty of capital around to, 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 to back them. And you know, in hindsight, maybe some of those were, were done at the wrong price or were, were, were uh, you know, businesses that may, might, you know, shouldn't have listed. But that's always the case in a, in a, in a bull market. Uh, course, I think, I think you know, we're, we're in, a, we're in a, a cyclical downturn at the moment. The UK is out of favor um, with asset allocators. But that will turn, and uh, as you say, the, the private equity interest in some of our small companies and the disconnect in valuation, I think, is is quite likely to be a catalyst because yep. you know it shines a light on this valuation discrepancy. Um, you know, we're, we're only in the last sort of, you know, less than a week, we've seen three major sort of FTSE 250 company uh, takeover approaches from private equity. So, you know, and and U.S. private equity in particular. So. You know, I think that is really going to start getting people's attention. And if that starts to make people you know, reduce their underweight positions to UK equities, that means money starts to flow back into the Correct. market. Uh, it could turn quite quickly. So it becomes self-fulfilling, and as you say, hopefully quite quickly. Um, well, we'll have to sort of wait and wait and watch and see. Um, as my regular listeners know, I like to close on three questions. So, Ken, I'm going to take one at a time, if that's okay. Your greatest inspirational mentor? Um I'd say my, my greatest mentor would be my old boss when I first moved 
uh, from the south side to the buy side at, at, at Living Bridge, so which is Henrietta Marsh. Yep. So uh, no, she's a, a super bright person. She sort of took a risk on me, moving you know, that I could make the transition from being an analyst to being a fund manager. Um, she gave me a lot of responsibility very quickly. Um, she taught me, taught me to be you know, even more skeptical probably than I already already was about what I'm being told by companies and, and, and by brokers and such <laughs> like, <laughs> particularly brokers, sorry. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, but she also sort of helped me to, to really believe in, in, in my own judgment and you know, what I was saying earlier on about the breadth of experience you get. You know, just she gave me a lot of confidence that the breadth of experience and knowing what good looks like is actually really, really valuable. And, and just because you've got a very sort of confident and salesy CEO telling you something doesn't mean that they know everything and, and know a lot more than you do. So, um, no, she, and, and then you know, when she retired, she persuaded the powers that be that Living Bridge to, to back me and let me take over from her, which was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, what's Het doing now? She's a non-executive director yeah. on, a few, on a few different companies. And in a book which has inspired you, this is quite. Uh, you can have yeah. more than one. Well, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. I, uh, you know, you could go for for a sort of classic uh, investor book or such, or you know, Ben Graham or yeah. whatever. But I think uh, um, Michael Lewis's Big Short was a really uh, yeah. it inspired me because uh, you know, fascinating story, really well written, very easy to understand for non-financial people. Yes. Um, but you know, taking the stories of some of those people like Michael Burry and Steve Eisman and people who, who were just going completely against the consensus, completely against the crowd, contrarian views, but really focusing on the data and the work that they'd done, had conviction in, in the fundamentals that they, they understood. And they just sort of went against what was, you know, it turned out to be mass euphoria, which was, which was misplaced. And, and you know, they, they were extremely successful on the back of that. So con- being contrarian and sticking to your guns believing the work that you do rather than just what everyone else thinks is, is really uh, And actually from that, I, I took us home as well. The fact that doing your own work is so very important. Getting on that train and going and seeing the companies, you know, going and seeing the sites, talking mm-hmm. to customers, very much the, the DD that I know you do at Gresham before yep. you make an investment. You know, the the book and also the, the movie highlights how well they, they did that and yeah. piecing together that data to come up with their view. Agree with that. And then the, the other book I'd, I'd, which I've read relatively recently, which I found quite fascinating from a different for a different reason, is uh, is called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Uh, J.D. Vance is a, who's just become a senator in the U.S. Um, he's actually one, one of the only sort of Trump supporting senators that, that got elected in the last in the midterms. Um, and you know, he came from a really, really broken, difficult sort of industrial background in in, in Ohio. Like broken families, violence, drug taking, and all the rest of it. But end up going to going to Yale to uh, doing doing law degree at Yale. Um, you know, super bright guy, but from a difficult background. And what it what it what it really highlighted to me. Obviously, I, I I don't agree with his his sort mm-hmm. of political stance mm-hmm. and, and some of his views, but it gave me a real insight into why he believes what he does because of how his, yeah. his own sort of experience has been shaped by his background. And I think it's important just to not, not just be to blindly follow your own beliefs, but also try and understand other people's perspectives, even if you don't agree yeah. with them. No, that's, that's very, that's very good advice. And speaking of advice, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting on their career to follow in your footsteps? Um, look, I think, I think having, professional training you know, whether it's accounting or, or, or something else I think is, is you know, it's, it's a fantastic grounding and it just ensures that people understand that 
hard work and being disciplined and kind of you know just getting all the basics in place before you kind of want before you rush off to try and do yeah. the thing that you you, yeah. you think you want to do in the long run you know, so just getting the getting the groundwork in place um and then be persistent it's quite difficult to get into fund management um you know, i know some extremely bright people who uh, you know, f- found it very, very hard to, to 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 get into a job which they 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 believe they'd be successful at, and and you know, definitely have the intelligence for. But you just don't give up. Uh, I value very highly when when I'm interviewing people, um, uh, resilience. So yep. just not giving up and um, and drive. So do, just going the extra mile to do something to 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 get you know, to get to where you want to get to. And you know, people who've moved from back office to front office and I think yep. that, that shows you've got a real get up and go about you because most people don't do that so you know, just don't give up and, and you know, if, if you really want it you'll make it happen Excellent advice and how can listeners get in touch with you Ken? Uh, well, you can probably find me on LinkedIn under the Gresham site or you know, my, my, my name on there Fantastic, Ken it's been a great chat, thanks so much Thank you Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.